Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, friends. I'm glad to be back. And Haley Knoth. Hello, hello. We've been derelict in our duty because we are, what, three or four episodes now into succession? Yeah, three. Yeah, three. And we've talked about it on the show in the past. It has a lot of sort of corporate slash legal intrigue that, again, we've covered on the show before. We have not ventured into this season yet. And I guess these are like light spoilers, I think, through episode two. So if you don't want to know that, uh, first of all, we do have an all-host show this week. So got a couple of interesting news stories to talk about with you. If you're not current on Succession, just smash that 15-second button a couple times. And also, don't get on the internet in any shape or form. That's right. Or read the LA Times. Well, good. (laughs) Thank you, Haley, for that. Uh, And this isn't even like a major plot point, but it is for, I think, our audience. And I did want to note that, at least in the early going of this season, a major plot point has been the pending, looming divorce of Tom and Shiv. Yes. Which the sort of dramatic fulcrum of that arc at least so far, involved Tom, backed by Logan, doing the classic flood the zone, calling up and consulting with all of the top high-end divorce lawyers in Manhattan and conflicting them out. I loved that as a plot point because as a strategy from Logan, pretty funny. Yeah. But also, I really like that, you know, Shiv is very rich, so presumably can have her pick of any nationwide divorce attorney and work it out. So I don't Mm -hmm. know how good a strategy it really even is. Yeah, I mean, they sort of are containing it to New York. And like, I think the implication is like, there's only a handful of lawyers who can capably handle a divorce of this value, right? Like, that's what they're trying to portray to you. But your point's well taken, I think, Amber. Love to talk succession, especially uh, after this past week's episode. But No spoilers here. We're not in that business. We don't do that. We're not in the succession spoiler business. I mean, I did just spoil, I guess. (laughs) Just a little. Nothing nothing that big. A minor plot point here and there is is fine. But we do have a lot to cover. We've got a lot to do today. So I'm just going to get right to it, guys. We set up that it was an all-host show. First story's from me. And do you ever feel like technology is spying on you at every turn? For me, it usually happens when I casually mention something in my house and I think my Alexa overhears me and then I start seeing ads for it all over Facebook. Yeah, I just assume I'm always being listened to, monitored, you know, the old FBI agent joke on the internet. I mean, one thing I've never truly worried about was if my car might also be doing some of that. And (laughs) that's what I want to talk about. So Tesla was recently hit with a proposed class action saying that its vehicles have been surreptitiously recording videos and images of Tesla owners' homes and what they were doing outside of the car. And then Tesla employees shared them around as basically like internal messages and gossip fodder. Man. Yikes. That's wild. Tesla's having a rough go of it. Weren't they? They're also dealing with, um, I only remember this because it was an I think you should leave with Tim Robinson reference. (laughs) But some of their like steering wheels were flying off. They got a lot going on, guys. Oh, they really do. A great car that doesn't have a steering wheel that flies off while I'm driving. <laughs> yes, thank you. 
they are involved in a lot of litigation. But this is sort of an interesting one, Amber, because they've had like the self-driving function and its various misadventures have drawn a lot of litigation. And this kind of draws on not just their role as a car company, but as a data company, a tech company. And I think we should explore a little bit more about what is at stake here. Like what's going on? A San Francisco resident filed this proposed class action in Northern California federal court. And the allegations are that Tesla vehicles outfitted with advanced driver assistance systems have these cameras that capture, and I quote here, highly invasive videos and images of the vehicle owners. So the driver assistance program is also what they call autopilot. It relies on cameras and sensors. And the system includes, at least some of these vehicles, eight cameras that capture 360 degrees around the vehicle. And for many of the models, also a driver facing camera. So plenty of stuff can be captured there. These cameras and autopilot systems, they do capture, record, and store activities taking place both inside and outside the Tesla. According to the lawsuit, some of the recordings appear to have been made when the cars were parked and turned off. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't like that. Yeah, no one seems to love that. And also showed customers in all kinds of scenarios. So like, doing laundry, or what the complaint sort of obliquely calls other intimate things. Not only was this (laughs) stuff being picked up by the cameras, but allegedly from 2019 to 2022, Tesla employees viewed and shared these sensitive videos and images that were collected from the cameras basically for their own amusement. They were sharing things in group chats, turning some of them into memes, spreading them around the Tesla offices. And that includes all sorts of things. Pictures of family pets were one common thing that was mentioned that were turned into memes and posted in Tesla group chats. And then some of the videos showed things like people's kids and also a whole bunch of other stuff that just became internal office jokes around Tesla. This, again, as alleged, really does kind of read like sort of a laundry list of the worst things you could assume about a tech company that it's looking at you and your family and whatever intimate activities or whatever that phrase. And making fun of it. Yes. And and then, yeah. And then exactly. you. Yeah, it's using it as like meme fodder around the Tesla offices, again, as alleged. Uh, but is there like a stated policy goal within Tesla for having access to this expanse of data and video footage? I think this part is kind of important here that... To develop self-driving car technology, Tesla collects, like you said, a vast trove of data. And it does require car owners to give permission on the car's touchscreens before Tesla collects their vehicle's data. Then they have staff that basically culls through these videos and images to basically train the AI. And a lot of that is stuff like, how does it learn how to spot the difference between a pedestrian versus like a fire hydrant, for example? So there are reasons they're collecting this data. But the main allegation here is that the videos that were clearly of people in their homes, as well as also some other videos of like crashes and road rage incidents, they were widely shared among the employees for no real business purpose. It wasn't like they were being shared because an employee was asking their boss how to code something or how to categorize it. Mm -hmm. They were being shared as jokes. And that's where the real allegation comes in. In the company slacks or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And so that's how you get to privacy violations here. The suit specifically says Tesla egregiously violated California consumer protection laws and also its own privacy policy. 
Tesla's made a point to tell customers that their privacy is important to the company, that the cameras on the cars are designed to record anonymously and aren't directly linked to a customer or their vehicles. But obviously, the complaint is pushing back on that anonymity. It's saying a few things, including that if these are being shared around as a joke and you can see inside someone's garage or wherever they have the car, you can see a lot of things that would be direct identifiers of who owns that car. So where is that Mm -hmm. anonymity anymore? Yeah. And then there's also this quote from the filing. Tesla captures recordings of people vulnerable on their own property, in their own garages, and even in their own homes, including at least one instance where Tesla cameras captured a video of a man naked in his home. So that is right there in the complaint. They're catching, like we said, some intimate moments. (laughs) This is just a complaint, as we said. We will have to see what happens next. But as we alluded to, this has to be added to the growing list of concerns that Tesla has, a mountain of legal woes there, but also to the broader conversation around big tech and privacy. And this is maybe a bit of an unexpected avenue to attack that. We're used to like Facebook collects data from you as you sign up, that kind of thing. This one's a little perhaps considered a little more invasive because it's something capturing videos of you right there in your own home. So we'll have to see how this one plays out. Eager to see what happens on that front. Before we get to our next story, I did just want to ask the chat, both Haley and Amber, do we have any vapors in the chat? Any cloud queens? I am such a straight-laced person, Alex. You know the answer for me is no. Okay. No, me either. I think you've asked us this before, because I was going to say I somehow know that you also don't vape. I don't vape. And that's how you know we come at this sort of like fully neutral. I don't know. Although I guess you could say if we don't vape, it's not neutral. I don't want to get into an objectivity (laughs) journalism debate here. That's not the point. The point is, I only ask, I ask my non-cloud queens (laughs) whether they are cloud queens, only because we have some very, very interesting developments, some very exciting happenings in the very sort of active space of vape litigation. Most specifically, I'm talking about this week, e-cigarette giant Juul. Jewel, I think even if you're not a vapor, you know, Jewel agreed to pay $462 million to settle allegations that it marketed its vape products to minors in an effort to get them hooked on to nicotine to gin up future sales. There has been a lot of focus on Jewel and other e-cigarette companies regarding the way they are marketing their products. And I think that the settlement that came to the fore this week really gives us a good opportunity to take a broad view of it and kind of take stock of the way the law is grappling with this industry, which is still kind of emergent, but very powerful and very influential. So I think it's important to talk about. I mean, we are talking about big numbers here, nearly half a billion dollars in this settlement. So what does that entail? I mean, what does that cover? So this settlement that we're talking about this week takes its origin from a series of lawsuits that were filed by attorneys general in California, Colorado, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Mexico, New York, and also Washington, D.C., and those were between 2019 and 2020. There are some differences, but they all generally allege that the company, Juul, had been advertising its products as a safe alternative to cigarettes and sort of employed these very bright, flashy advertisements that were clearly directed at minors and were (laughs) designed to promote a glamorized image 
of vaping. Now, we don't need to get too into the weeds here, but vapes still do contain nicotine, and that's a factual matter. And the marketing of those products did spur these lawsuits from the states and from the District of Columbia, which led to some pretty interesting claims. The AGs specifically said that, I'm just kind of cherry-picking a couple examples here, but in New York, Juul is alleged to have sent representatives to at least one high school as part of an outreach campaign, which I thought was pretty interesting to allege in a suit. Also, Massachusetts claimed that the company tried to recruit Miley Cyrus to market its products. And while there were other states and other districts said that Jules had a very sort of intense presence on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, that was clearly meant to target minors, even if you can sort of facially claim that if you're just on a social network, you're not you're not necessarily targeting minors, but the certain right. like, sort of cadence of your marketing can suggest as much. I would also throw in there, Miley Cyrus, I think, is only a year or two younger than me. She's in her 30s, so she also is not. Her appeal is also a bit universal because that new song of hers, love it. Oh, so. it's a banger. Yeah, anyway. it's a banger. So the settlement agreement stipulates, th th again, this is just sort of, these are the terms of the settlement agreement that was announced this week, that there will be regular payouts to these states and districts over the next several years. And as you might imagine, the AGs definitely took a victory lap on this. Uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James said, quote, Jewel lit a nationwide public health crisis by putting addictive products in the hands of minors and convincing them that it's harmless. Today, they are paying the price for the harm they caused. So in the sort of PR dance of all of this, I mean, it is a huge number. And the attorneys general who brought the cases were clearly pleased with the result. And they were pretty aggressive here, too, in bringing this in the first place. Can you kind of maybe tell us a little bit about that motivation to really target Jewel here? Yeah. As I was reading up on this case and... Another case that we'll talk about in just one second, it's pretty clear that at least from just like a prosecutorial discretion standpoint, that the tobacco industry litigation of the 1990s is like really to the fore of the thinking here for the prosecutors. And so many of the complaints that the AGs filed cited that litigation. Now, I don't mean to draw a false comparison there. The scale here is very, very different. If you don't remember this, the master settlement agreement that ended that tobacco litigation in 1998 totaled about $206 billion. Wow. This is a $462 million case. And that was like $206 billion that was supposed to be paid out over 25 years. And the facts are a little bit different. Those cases dealt with like a health crisis caused by tobacco products that had been concealed for years. Whereas the Juul case is more about like, it's clearly about marketing and it's tying this idea that this is an alternative tobacco product. And it kind of seems like the litigation is meant to head off some idea that some health crisis could occur if nobody's looking closely enough. So that's what's going on here. All of which is to say is that I do think that the tobacco litigation kind of shadow was definitely cast far over this effort. And it definitely informed the way that prosecutors 
were going after Jewel on this point. Those cases are settled, but I'm pretty sure, as you mentioned, you know, this is not the only thing going on in vaping litigation. What else is is out there? What are we seeing? Well, first of all, it brings me just endless joy to just like talk about vaping litigation as a category. I think it's just like, very <laughs> funny to me. But Jewel has settled these cases, as we've already said. But not every vaping company is following them. Some are going more to the hilt. The sort of industry and the people who are monitoring the vaping industry are looking really closely at a class action that has been brought against a company called the Altria Group, which is a jewel investor, which is now facing much the same way that Jewel was. They are facing a bunch of deceptive marketing claims that are actually set to go to trial later this month. The same kind of fact pattern applies, as I just said, the deceptive marketing of e-cigarette products to minors. But Juul actually settled out of that case, and then they settled these cases that we talked about just now in the segment. But Altria has held firm, and the cases go at the marketing campaign from a public nuisance angle, which we've talked about on the show before, which alleges that a community's interests are violated by the marketing campaign. So that takes like a more collective view of how a marketing campaign can impact a community. And as I say, that's a bellwether case that is supposed to go to trial later this month. So it's an active scene that we will keep an eye on. And in the meantime, you know, clouds up. Amber and Alex, I have another question for the chat, as Alex always puts it. Are you guys big on uh, honking your horn while you're <laughs> driving around town? I assume, Alex, you don't really drive that much. No, I do, actually. I, oh, okay. I, I am one of the rare Brooklyn residents that has a car, and I know Amber has a car, too. I so, do. Amber, go first. Yeah. Well, I'm not a big honk the horn person, but my husband likes to. So, well, you know, we're a mixed household. Well, and that feeds into my answer because I definitely honk it, meaning my car horn, more than <laughs> any, more than my wife does. And she often kind of chides me for being a little too aggressive on that front. But this is New York City, Amber. You know how this goes. I mean, come on. Now. It's New York, baby. That's New York, baby. <laughs> but there's rules about it. You're only supposed to honk at an emergency, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that gets us to our next story here. The Ninth Circuit recently weighed in on a California law that limits your vehicle's horn use except for in a situation where you are warning someone about a safety hazard. It's actually a very common law across the country, but I would say, you know, a lot of people either don't know it exists or have flagrantly never disregard. Yeah. yeah, have never encountered enforcement. Perhaps. Yes, exactly. It's like lightly enforced at best. I mean, I well, whatever. Exactly. I don't know. This is a more actionable thing that we're talking about here. But yes, yeah. I mean, those things are common, but it's sort of. I mean, not to be a negative person in this conversation, but are we really talking about honking your horn? Why is this important? <laughs> we are. We okay. are, Amber. It's greatly important, as Haley will soon explain. Let's get into the merits here. So in this case, 
a San Diego woman was cited for honking in support of a protest. And she argues that honking in support of demonstrations is a constitutionally protected expression of free speech. And even if it's not, she says that a prohibition on that sort of honking is too sweeping and burdensome to justify the supposed interest in enforcing it, which, of course, the state would say is safety. So the panel majority did not agree with this woman. The Ninth Circuit majority found that the law is indeed narrowly tailored enough to advance California's interest in traffic safety. But there was also a really interesting dissent here in which one judge said, absolutely, the law prohibits core expressive conduct and is indeed unconstitutional. You know, I take it back. That does sound like a compelling thing for us to talk about. Yeah, Amber. We don't often get into these honking laws. I mean, I'd never think about this at all. So I don't think we've had a single story about honking law. Why, why would we? In almost 300 episodes in, I'm pretty sure not. I'm happy the show can still surprise us. So yeah, that's, Haley, that's a good point. <laughs> after all this time. <laughs> yes. Haley, tell us about what's actually in these laws. We sort of obliquely talked about how they're meant to, you know, I guess preserve a less noisy urban environment for one thing, but also protect safety. So what's that mean exactly? Yeah, so this is a section of California's vehicle code, and it prohibits honking except when reasonably necessary to warn another driver or a pedestrian of a safety hazard. At least 40 other states have similar restrictions in their vehicle codes. So like I said, it is pretty common. And the rationale here, according to the state, is if people are honking all the time for fun or for other reasons, then other drivers and pedestrians won't be able to tell when the honk is actually for a safety reason. Therefore, you know, it's no longer a useful safety tool. It's the boy who cried wolf phenomenon, right? Like the, the idea that, listen, I'll cop to a, I honestly don't even know if New York has a law like this on the book. I know, I meant to look up if, uh, if you guys, if New sure Jersey and New York it do, I think does. they do. It's a, it's a state that is rife for passing a law like this. But I do understand <laughs> the concept of, to Amber's point, it is just sort of like a local, like sort of municipal thing of making things more pleasant. But also, if the horn as a function of the car, not to get too esoteric about this, is meant to be a safety feature, and then you're using it in ways that are not related to safety, then you are then diluting situations in which it could actually be used to alert someone that like, hey, your little baby is walking in front of a moving car or something. But anyway, the idea here, though, in this California case, what exactly is she arguing? She doesn't think that this is a useful policy tool or or it just needs to be reinterpreted? Or what is the argument exactly, Haley? Yeah, so her name is Susan Porter, and she contends that there is no actual evidence that honking in support of demonstrations jeopardizes traffic safety. Her case is not weighing in at all on honking because someone in front of you isn't going fast enough, et cetera, et cetera. This is all about what she calls expressive horn use. So she says (laughs) that that could include honking to support candidates or causes, honking to greet friends, to summon people, you know, honking outside of uh, someone's house to get them to come out, or honking to celebrate. And she was hoping that the courts would block future enforcement of the law when it comes to that so-called expressive horn use. 
She said the law is a content-based regulation that violates both the First and Fourteenth Amendments. And alternatively, like I mentioned earlier, she said it's more burdensome than it is necessary to protect legitimate government interests. I love a lot about this story, but I think my favorite thing so far is expressive horn use. You nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it, Amber. I mean, that's exactly right. I, I was like, going to say, I don't think I've ever had to utter the word honking so much. In <laughs> well, you're, you're really, going to do it a couple more times, I think, before we're done here. <laughs> I love the notion of expressive horn use. And maybe the next time we get in the car, I'm going to have to think about if I'm doing it wrong. I need to figure out my expression better. But <laughs> the majority here didn't agree with her and said that those arguments don't hold water. Why is that? The majority did agree that a honk can carry a message and be understood as communicative, but it said that the law applies to everyone who wants to use a horn when there isn't a safety hazard. So it relies on the surrounding factual situation, not on what people want to communicate. The majority pointed to testimony from a California Highway Patrol sergeant who said indiscriminate honking could dilute the potency of the horn as a warning device. Exactly what you said, Alex. Right. So one interesting thing in the majority's opinion, it also noted that citations for this reason don't appear to be common and officers are taught to use, quote, sound professional judgment in deciding whether to give a warning or a citation And that broad discretion could theoretically open the door to selective enforcement. However, that's not what Porter was alleging. So the majority said Porter hasn't alleged that the state has a policy or practice of improper selective enforcement. So it has no occasion to address that possibility here. Yeah, so she wasn't exactly saying, like, I went and honked in support of a protest and the cops didn't like that I supported the protest and so they targeted me. Exactly. She didn't even make that argument. Yes, that's exactly right. And we've had our fun in this segment, you know, expressive honking is like a very funny legal term. It's a very lawyerly type of term, which we often poke fun at. But this um, exposes, I think, a pretty interesting legal concept. I don't know if this specific case was related to that, but, you know, in the last, like, several years, we've seen a lot of protests, especially in dense urban areas in New York, where I live, whether it's related to to police brutality or other things like that. And, like, people just drive by and honk either to sort of ask people to get out of the way or in support, which I think is more on point here. It's an interesting legal quandary. Again, that did not pass muster with the majority, but what you hinted already, Haley, at the dissent, what did the dissent say on that point? Circuit Judge Marsha Burzon agreed with Porter that there's no actual evidence that political expressive horn use jeopardizes traffic safety. She said that the highway patrol sergeant's testimony shouldn't have even been admitted in the first place because the officer, quote, utterly failed to explain how his general law enforcement experience supported the specific opinions he expressed on the law. She said The majority's fundamental error here was failing to sufficiently focus on the specific type of enforcement at the core of the case, and that is enforcement against honking in response to a political protest. That, according to the judge, is a core form of expressive conduct that merits the most stringent constitutional protection. And she also said it's qualitatively different from warning honks or other forms of using a horn. 
Yeah, that's so interesting because that's a classic example of like a majority and a dissenting opinion just kind of taking either a broader or narrower view. I mean, the dissent is sort of specifically trying to view this in the context of a political action, whereas the majority just kind of seems to take a broader view of the law and say like, hey, listen, it's supposed to be for safety purposes and it's not. So that's kind of the end of it. But yeah, yeah. I spoke with Porter's attorney and he said the majority has essentially upheld the power of the government to penalize people for engaging in core First Amendment speech. Um, And he said, again, that it did so without any evidence. He told me that he and his client are considering seeking further review. So, you know, we could see the full Ninth Circuit weighing in on this, or I suppose it could even land before the Supreme Court. A lot of different avenues or, you know, this is it. Maybe it just we leave it here. We'll just have to wait and see. (laughs) Honk if you like this opinion. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I'm going to turn it over to you. I think our listeners might have heard a music cue about what we're talking about today. That's true. We're here. I honestly went back and forth on how to frame this. I didn't know whether we were doing Pro Se Unplugged or Pro Se Storytellers. Storytellers. Or Pro Se. Or or Pro pro Se se Behind the Music. Yeah, I think that's actually the way to go. Oh, good one. This, yeah. We are, what we're talking about here is a new suit that was filed by the guitarist for Motley Crue, who is professionally known as Mick Mars, which basically alleges that he was unfairly ousted from the band. And that is a very loaded thing, and we'll get into lots of stuff that's going on in the complaint, but the sort of core dispute at the center of the complaint is Mars's decision to stop touring with the band. He claims that he has an autoimmune condition that produces severe back pain, and that kind of seems simple enough on its merits, but he asked that he be allowed to stay on for potential residency shows, recording sessions, and also just standalone gigs, but just not touring. And this is where it gets like really wonky, where Mars says that he decided to withdraw from the band, but then he also accuses the other members of the band to like mobilize against him and kind of like weaponize the corporate entities that like underpin the band to effectively vote him out. And uh, it's very funny to me because as you say, Haley, this is behind the music, but like a legal complaint version. Well, you know, I've watched a lot of behind the music and rarely does the breakup of the band result in litigation. I would like the show even more if they all turned to this at some point. (laughs) I know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, (laughs) it's weird, right? It's a little strange to sue your own bandmates. 
usually bands just break up and that's all that you hear about it, just that they broke up. So what are some of the key points here? It's pretty wild. And again, I mean, again, this is a suit. We say it all the time. I, I literally said it earlier in the show. This is just a complaint. But as you read the document, it does read as an airing of grievances of like four decades of acrimony against <laughs> the band members from Mars. And he does not mince words at all. And so this is kind of just like starts from the very inception of the band. And it literally, it literally like traces to the origin story of Motley Crue. Good Lord. And see, walks forward from there. So see, Amber, I disagree with you. I think it's for the best for our justice system that every band that breaks up doesn't end in litigation. Uh, <laughs> we have very different views of the it's justice true. system, Haley. Diving I don't know deep what to into all of their qualms over 40 years. Like, but I want to <laughs> know if, one, if, if bands I like break up, this is how you would know all the dirt. Like it's in here, right, Alex? True, like, yeah. true. Give us some of the dirt. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of this stuff has been like kind of, I mean, you don't need to be a Motley Crue historian to know that they were like a hard partying hair metal band from the 80s or whatever, but a few high points here, I think. The, literally the, the, the first sort of argument, like narrative portion of the complaint begins in like hilariously passive aggressive fashion, quote, again, this is from Mars, the 41 years with Motley Crue was not without incident. Two of the members not Mars, were addicted to heroin for much of their careers, and one has had a continuous severe alcohol addiction. Just so, read it oh, as wow. the opening to the behind the music. We've right already, there, we're like, making hey, the listen, episode. Some people in the band had a heroin problem. It wasn't- Not me. Not me. <laughs> some people did. I also just kind of, because of that clause there, I did control F, the phrase not Mars, Oh, and it pops up like five or six times, nice. ostensibly just to kind of pass blame for the other members' wild behavior. And they are a sort of famously raucous band. And again, here, I'll give you another one. Another band member, not Mars, was jailed in Japan when under the influence of Halcyon and alcohol and reacting to finding out about Mars's relationship with a backup dancer who Mars ultimately married, hurled a bottle of Jack Daniels at Mars to scare him and ended up injuring a random Japanese passenger in the head when the bottle shattered on the front wall of a railroad car on a bullet train. Now, again, this is still just like a corporate unseating suit, but all this stuff is being aired, like this stuff like touring in Japan from decades ago. The next graph after what I just said was, the same band member was convicted of inciting a riot at a show in Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay, here's my new idea, right? <laughs> we make yeah. this movie, but the framing device of the script is that it's in the court. And then yeah. it's like flashing back to all the incidents. Ooh. And that's how you tell the story of the band. But it's framed by the lawsuit. I think that's the way to do it. A couple other points here and then we can uh, skedaddle, but... During the prologue of the claims of this suit, Mars just kind of casually slips in the fact that he came up with the name Motley Crue. Again, <laughs> not germane to the lawsuit at all. Like, I mean, they are claiming that he that they just forced him out of the corporate entities that underlie the interest of the band. But he just says that. Well, here's the thing, Alex. You're married to. 
Do you ever have a fight with your spouse and you just throw in something like, well, for the record. Well, sure. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And this really feels like that. Yeah. For the record. (laughs) Exactly. You just want to like, you want to get a couple jabs in, you know, it's not, (laughs) you're not trying to win the whole round, but like you want to score some points. But anyway, another big through line in this, in this complaint is that there's a tremendous amount of bitterness and acrimony about the band's live performances, especially over the past several years, which you can imagine they've, um, they've been a band for 40 years and they of course did their share of substances or whatever purportedly. Now (laughs) Mars acknowledges in the complaint that those live performances were deteriorating over the years. Now, a lot of this focuses on uh, Motley Crue bassist, Nikki six, one of the founding members of the band who Mars says in the complaint was quote, gaslighting him about his subpar live performances. And this just goes into some plainly petty sniping about what's going on with the live performances. According to Mars, this is from Mars' complaint, he says that Nikki Six, the, the basis of the band, quote, repeatedly told Mars that he was playing the wrong chords and that fans were complaining about his playing. Astonishingly, Six made these claims about Mars's playing while he, Six, did not play a single note on bass during the entire U.S. tour. Ironically, oh. 100% of Six's bass parts were nothing but recordings. Six was seen fist pumping in the air with his <laughs> strumming hand while the bass part was playing, end quote. So he's basically saying you're just using a backing track and you're not even present here, but he was accusing Mars of like phoning in his performance. Honestly, God bless. And I take back my earlier take. I've changed oh, my right? mind. And rather than <laughs> discouraging all bands from not taking their breakups to litigation, I think we should form more a, a separate, like, you oh, know, we a have- special court. Yes, we have bankruptcy yeah. court, we have small claims court, and we have band breakup band court. court. Yep. Yeah. Band, band breakup court. Yes, I think yep. that's right. I have a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, first of all, at the core of the thing, like, it really bummed me out to read that, you know, I'm not like some huge Motley Crue fan, but the action is against a bunch of corporate entities that now underlie what we know as Motley Crue, which is like, Some LLC that handles ticket sales, some LLC that handles merchandising, some corporation that handles, you know, IP or whatever. Like, those are the things. And he is like a 25% board member on those various things. And and now he says he was forced out. So that's just sort of a dilution of what we understand about rock and roll. But it's not um, about the art anymore, man. I know. Commodification. We are running long, but I did at least want to open the mic to pro se producer Kelly Marcano. Kelly, I know you're a I know you don't like to hop on the mic that much, but you are a a student of rock and roll and its various subgenre offshoots. And I just want to know if there are any other kind of notes that you think are are worth making here on Motley Crue or hair metal generally or these kind of disputes. I would welcome your thoughts. As a kid that grew up in the 80s and was raised <laughs> in a motorcycle family, I yeah. was exposed to a lot of metal as a child. <laughs> sure. I remember Motley Crue. Stay Crew your credentials. The, I remember Motley Crue being one of the very first bands that I ever cared about. It was one of the first times <laughs> uh-huh. that I was like, oh, music is fun. 
Oh, yeah. does this suit sadden you, though? That being said, their music is deeply silly, which just <laughs> even further makes me just really tickled by this entire thing. Yeah. Uh, you're saying Dr. Feelgood is not a serious piece of, of musical art? Come on. I mean, they are, they're geniuses. Uh, let's, let's put it out there. I mean, if, <laughs> I mean, if you don't think I was like rocking out to smoking in the boys' room in high school, you're wrong. And that's, <laughs> that's like almost 20 years after that song was popular. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I do think that the arguments that are happening here about the live performance aspect of this, as we've yeah. to a world that we, we're seeing more of these legacy bands kind of reforming, getting back together, doing these big tours, charging tons of money for it. And then to go on and... <laughs> <laughs> to, to just play the backing tracks just seems really, really duplicitous and kind of lame to me. And so to, sure. read, to read these complaints in this lawsuit and to hear them really sniping at each other for the practices that they're actually doing is just very funny to me. It's so it's very silly. Kelly, we did this segment for you. So That's true. hope you enjoy That's true. editing this together later so the listeners will enjoy it too. <laughs> and just want to thank everybody for today's show. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you, Amber. And also Haley. Thank you. We also want to, again, thank our producer, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our contributing reporters, Linda Chim, Katie Bueller, and Craig Clough. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, go on over to wherever you're listening, leave us a five-star and written review that helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.